Kalashing for Khalas? Want to buy or fine dine? Stay tuned to High FM on 101.9. Join Adrian Bagatti for SN Fresen Tuesday mornings from 11 a.m. where it's all about the food. Good morning and welcome to the SN Fresen show. So I hope I'm a familiar voice. I'm Sharon Lurie, the kosher butcher's wife, coming to you live from the studio of High FM. So lovely to be back helping out my friend. So it was an appropriate song that we chose. You've got a friend. I'm helping out Adrian, who is um, game reserve hopping, I suppose you could call it, with kosher tourists. How amazing. But, you know, you think it's it's amazing, but, boy, is it hard work. I know that she works an 18-day hour starting in the dark and ending in the dark. But it's travel season for our overseas visitors, so we got to be there to promote our country. So I was actually only given a few days to prepare for this show, so forgive me if I sound a bit rusty. I'll try and iron out all the kinks and press on with my favorite subject, which is food. So it's time to get a little nippy out there. Time to get our uni clothes. Or am I out of fashion? Or those last year's, uh, last year's coats. Okay, whatever it is that you want to put on to keep warm, just put it on. So now, as I was saying, it's getting nice and it's really cold today. And it's a little windy. There's a chill in the air. So it's time to get out those jackets, sheepskin slippers, and get those fires going for hot soup and bagel Sunday. Nothing better on a Sunday for me. Beautiful hot soup. And nine times out of ten, it's been stuck in the fridge from Shabbos. <laughs> and I just rewarm it on Sunday. And talking about Sundays, let's not forget what's happening this Sunday. It's Father's Day. And, you know, so often you hear people saying Father's Day should be every day. And what do we need a, a special day for? And it's just the, the money-making racket. You know what? There's nothing wrong with an extra special day for mothers and for fathers. And, in fact, I know of many a story how Father's Day has actually reunited relationships between families. So variables go out the window and a family Father's Day is something to be proud of. So many things you can do on Father's Day. You can make a brunch. You can have a games day. You know, I'm not one for um, picnics, maybe uh, once a year. <laughs> but um, for, for someone like me who just likes staying at home, I like a... A home Father's Day, so we're going to have a poiki, a yummy, a yummy lamb one. And my contribution is going to be poloni puffs. Okay, so you may say, what are poloni puffs? And this is something that I created just, just so happened one day that I had some people over and I thought, what am I going to give them? They would Staying on, I thought, oh, I must give them something for supper or for drinks or for supper, you know. So instead of a hot dog or instead of a bologna bagel, I had in the freezer some pastry discs. Now, 
and um, Orit makes these wonderful pastry discs. I think they come ten in a pack, if I'm not mistaken. What I did was I defrosted them and just on a, I put them on a very lightly dusted board, dusted with flour, and then I painted the discs with mustard pickles. I used mustard mayonnaise and what I did was um, I painted the inside of the disc and I left about a centimeter around the edge so that I could wet the edge with water to seal this little parcel together. So what's in the parcel? About three slices of salami. And of course this depends on the size. I know that continental salami is, a, is bigger, other salamis are smaller. So you just put them in till they fit nicely. You can slice them up if you want to. It does make it eating the little pirogue, as you could call it, easier. And then what I did was, um, I put the, the salami in and I folded the pastry in half. And I pressed the edges together where I painted it with a little bit of water, painted it with an egg wash, sprinkled it with sesame seeds, and I baked it in a preheated oven. You must ensure that it is preheated because you a pastry likes a very hot oven. So I put it onto about 200, and I baked them until they were golden brown, and they're quite hot as they come out, so let them cool down a bit. And uh, it was terrific. Of course, you can use, uh, roll out some pastry, but it's just so much easier to get the round discs. I believe they also make square discs, but for Poloni, I like to use the round. Uh, you don't have to get them 10 in a pack. You can get a lot more. In fact, I know you can get them in bulk from Moret, and you can get a you can make them, use them for pierogan. You can use them to make little cheese puffs. You can use them to make potato puffs. Whatever your heart desires. And then I, what I did was I served it with um, a little bit of sweet chili sauce. And people could can dip their little salami pierogues or poloni puffs, as I call them, into the sauce. So that's one idea that you can prepare for your family. And, of course, this is really curry, casserole, osabuco, a real comfort food season. And in comfort food, of course, I have to include macaroni cheese and hearty pasta dishes. And talking about pasta dishes, I am interviewing a lovely lady, Benedito Jasmine Guetto. Okay, I hope I got that right. Um, she is an Italian food writer and a photographer, and she was born in Milan, and she lives in Santa Monica. Now she's just moved over there. And um, she co-founded a website called Labna, L-A-B-N-A, the only Jewish kosher cooking blog in Italy, specializing in Italian and Jewish cuisine. Now, Cooking a la Guida is the ultimate tribute to the wonderfully rich yet still largely unknown culinary heritage of the Jews of Italy. And some of Italy's best-known dishes are Jewish in origin. And you'll find out more when, after the break when I play our interview. 
Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Uh, first of all, I'm, I need to get your name. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Benedetta Jasmine Weta. Yeah, 100% correct. Okay. I think you're one of the few people that nailed it. <laughs> At the first attempt. Okay, great. By the way, let me just be a complete sucker and say I love the South African accent. I do you? It's such a delightful, well, it's I, such a delightful accent. I love the Italian accent, I must tell you. Tell us what motivated you to write this book. I think that's a good place to start. I think that's a great question. <laughs> so it's a bit of a long story, so bear with me. Um, I used to have, I still have, uh, actually, uh, starting in 2009, a blog yes. online. And in my blog, I was writing about food. I was writing recipes. At some point, you know, being Jewish, I started writing more about Jewish recipes. And I, for me, it was just, you know, just like pasta or like rice or any other recipe that I was cooking in my kitchen because they're ordinary foods for me. But it turned out that there was a great deal of curiosity towards Jewish cuisine, especially in Italy. Because the Jewish community of Italy is very small. There's not many Jews in Italy. There's about 35,000 of us. And the, um, so since there's just so few Jews, people don't really know the Jews. Um, we are just such a tiny minority that we're not well known. So whenever people had the chance to relate to a Jew, to talk to a Jew um, online, it became, uh, it sort of got out of hand. Like, I didn't mean to write about Jewish things, but there was so much curiosity and people were asking me, like, you know, oh, you guys eat only unleavened bread. I'm like, no, that's only for the Jewish holiday of Passover. The rest of the year we eat bread like everyone else. <laughs> or like, there, people had just all of these weird questions and I found myself being the person that would answer them, mostly because I was available online. And so what started off as just a blog for food in general became a blog very focused on Jewish food. Um, like I said, mostly because my readers asked. Um, and that's how I started writing about Jewish food in particular. Now, as a um, consequence of that, I started researching Jewish food more, um, and in particular the Jewish food of Italy, because that's my country. And I started traveling around the peninsula and meeting, you know, grandmothers and people that had recipes that they wanted to share. And I came across a fairly sad uh, finding, which is, again, the Jewish population is very small and it's aging. So there's a lot of people who treasure recipes generations old that might not have a next generation to pass on those recipes to. Um, so that's when I got really anxious because there were there was this treasure of history, in a way, of culture that I felt strongly was on the verge of getting lost. So I suddenly got this urgency to record as much as I could. And um, my urgency was met from the other side, from the side of the people that provided the recipes, with the cutest enthusiasm. Now, you need to imagine some grandmas in Venice who, you know, have probably never left their neighborhood before. Um, and then they get to meet me and they learn that there is this stuff on the Internet where people read their recipes and you should have seen them they were so excited they were like oh the world is gonna see our, our recipes finally <laughs> someone is gonna have an interest in them because you know our grandchildren don't care if we have them so i was this conjunction of a sense of urgency on my end and their enthusiasm on the other 
and um, that really sort of got me into the thought that these recipes deserved a longer lasting future in a way like that this should not be the last generation that cooks these recipes um and that's how i started to write about it now this book would have never happened in italy because the audience for it is so small so i'm lucky that in the meantime i moved in the to the u.s where there is a bigger jewish community and there's a lot more interest in jewish things in general so um, so those recipes so those recipes finally found an audience. Uh, it's probably not the audience that uh, people originally imagined because, I mean, I guess they wanted their grandchildren, um, but it's better than no audience. Yeah, I'm sure that, that, that you'll be able to get. The grandchildren will find the book. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Hopefully. I mean, isn't that always the case that later in life, yes. when, like when they turn 50s and they have like a bit of a crisis, they're yeah. like, okay, then maybe we do need the recipes of our grandmother. Yeah. Oh, oh, why didn't I get my grandmother's recipe? You know, oh, I watched her making it so many times and I never took the recipe down. Well, now, now you'll give it to them. <laughs> so where yeah. are you living? Although those grandmas, mm. yeah, I, no, I was just saying, although those grandmas could do a better job, because a lot of the time when grandmas give you recipes, they're just so inaccurate. They're almost impossible to make. <laughs> like they tell you, you know, just put as much flour as the dough requires. And you're like, how much flour is... Yeah. The amount that the door requires. <laughs> exactly. So where are you so living now? Bandetta, where are you where are you living now? In America? I live in California. I live in Santa oh, Monica. Just lovely. Los Angeles practically. And where do you come from in Italy? What I area? come from Milan, I've been the north. Okay. Uh, Milan is the second biggest community Jewish community of Italy. The biggest one is Rome. Uh, and that's where I was born. Oh, that, that, that's where I was actually going to, I was going to ask you, you know, which has the biggest community. Because I was actually, when, in your book, you mentioned that, um, Chale is very difficult to get. You know, the bake, you don't have many bakeries, kosher bakeries. Um. We don't. Yeah. So it's actually quite funny because we don't, Chale is like a later addition, I find, to Italian cuisine. Italians mm. very often bless their Shabbat bread, uh, just as regular bread, uh, they would make some crusty buns, like, uh, I don't want to say like ciabatta, but like regular bread, um, yeah. that is often not challah. Now, I'm super obsessed with challah, I love challah, but, uh, in a lot of Italian households, you would find people blessing regular bread. Right. Now, you also say, um, like, wh- what would you say are, are unique to the Italian community, the, the Jewish Italian community? What what dishes would you say are unique? So it's 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 a very good question, um, but also a very wide one. So okay. you need to yeah. consider that Italy is a very geographically fragmented country. Picture it a bit like the United States, although it's not an exact um, comparison. But picture it like the United States as a collection of very tiny countries. Um, Italy wasn't unified until very relatively recently in history, and at all times in its past, it was um, a collection of tiny states. Each of one had, you know, their own rulers and their own traditions. Um, it's on weather, because if you go from the north to the south of Italy, the weather changes a lot. So every region would have its own traditional Jewish dishes um, that might vary a lot from region to region. So, um, for example, if you go to Rome, you would have a really wide variety of very old traditional Jewish dishes, um, they would resemble 
just uh, they, they would really not be anything similar to the ones you would find in say Venice because um, those, mm-hmm. those were different Jewish populations with different histories and Jewish traditions so in the south you would find for example dishes that are more reliant on tomato uh, or like on ingredients uh, um for example um oranges and things that that grow better in those weathers while for example up north you would find things that are more reliant on say pumpkin or rice um or for example farm animals so uh it really depends on the territory um and what you're going to find here. now and the availability of, yeah. of the food. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, so, uh, for example, now I can obviously throw a few names. The most iconic dish, perhaps, that everybody ends up finding out about is the um, is the famous fried artichokes. Those are those are from Rome. Those ended up on the cover of my book as well. Yeah. That's probably the one dish that people know. Um, as a dish of Jewish origin, um, despite the fact that it's served all over Rome. Um, but there are very, very many others um, based, uh, uh, like I said, on the, on the geographical differences. And what I found most interesting as I was researching the book is not really the dishes that are most known, because like I said, most of them are just not known. Um, it's been the dishes that are surprisingly Jewish, because there's a number of dishes in Italy that people think of as Italian, that actually have a Jewish origin. And that has been like a theme in my life recently to try to reclaim the Jewish origin of these dishes that people think of as just Italian. Because mm-hmm. when it comes to Italian food, it's very easy to paint it with a broad brush and be very superficial about it and say, oh, you know, that's Italian, like pizza or like uh, whatever, like all of those things that people think of as stereotypically Italian. However, to a lot of those dishes, there is a Jewish history. So I try to go out and uncover that history. And I'll give you another example. So in Venice, um, one of the most traditional Jewish dishes that you see all over town is called sardine sour. Sardine are big sardines and sour is a condiment. Now people think that this is a truly Venetian dish and they're very proud of it and rightfully so because it's delicious. However, Saor, the, the dressing, the condiment that this dish is made with, uh, it's a hundred percent a Jewish thing. Now, people don't know it. Huh? So every time I talk to people, I sort of try to raise the fact that, yes, these are Italian recipes and they're amazing. However, it would be really nice if we could just, you know, acknowledge the Jewish contribution to them. Um, that has historically sort of been lost because people you know, don't pay attention and because the Jews are not very vocal. Or like, for example, in um, Apulia, uh, in the, in central southern Italy, they think they have a dish called orecchiette, and they think that's local, that they came up with it. Uh, very, very proud people. They love their orecchiette. But again, not a thing. Orecchiette were a Jewish dish. The Jews brought them this shape of pasta from uh, France. So, again, it's very fascinating to me that there is all of this Jewish contribution to what we think of as Italian food at large that really need to be sort of spotlighted, in my humble opinion. Wasn't wasn't there a story about correct me if I'm wrong with the with the sardines that only the poor people what what but somebody said that uh, who was it the no so the story that you're mixing two stories oh, okay. uh, but I appreciate that you did your homework <laughs> um, so there's a very interesting story about the eggplant um, eggplant was the ingredient that uh, um, was 
recorded as only suitable for poor people, Jews and dogs. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> for, for generations, Italians were very skeptical of eggplant. Now, today you cannot think of Italian food without thinking of eggplant because it's such a substantial ingredient in, you know, parmigiana or yes. pasta alla norma. But uh, it wasn't always the case. Uh, Italians thought that eggplants were poisonous. Um, and it took the creative, the culinary creativity of the Jews to convince them that eggplants were actually a thing that they could eat and it's rather enjoyable. Um, and the other story that I think you actually have, might have had in mind that instead pertains to sardines, yeah. um, is the fact that at some point they became a very Jewish ingredient, um, because the Pope, and I forgot which Pope it was, so I'm gonna have to tell you this offline later on. <laughs> um, the Pope at some point said, um, fine, I want to limit the life of the Jews. I want to just make it as miserable as I can because that was the business of the popes for a while. Um, and he just decided to cut the luxuries of the Jews. Now, you need to imagine that Jews were already poor on average, so there wasn't not much luxury to cut. Um, but the Pope decided to decrease their luxuries by only allowing Jews to consume, to buy and consume small fishes like anchovies and sardines. So if you were a Jew and you wanted to buy yourself, you know, a nice sea bus, um, you couldn't because the Pope decided so. Um, and you could only afford these tiny fishes that were obviously less desirable because there's nothing much to eat and you end up eating a big pile of bones most of the time. So the Jews had to make do. Um, and again, they came up with delicious recipes that are still um, served, for example, all, all over Rome. This is obviously a Roman story featuring the Pope. Um, but... Uh, these were food that were somewhat undesirable and that the Pope only allowed the Jews because he wanted to make their life miserable. Yet the Jews made the most of them um, and created, like I said, some some really delicious local um, delicacies that are still served to this day. So I think these were the two stories that you might have uh, had okay. in mind, but I well, hope I read you well. <laughs> now, just one uh, another question I wanted to ask you, which... Basically, more, more like it actually comes from me and from my family because we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. If, as a tourist coming to Italy and keeping kosher and whatever, where would you say is the best place for us to go to get food, to find a nice supermarket? Would it be Milan and Rome? So that's a very um, difficult question. So uh, Italy, like I said, has very few Jews. That determines the fact that our kosher capabilities, like, you know, services and restaurants and supermarkets are not uh, like you would expect, for example, in the U.S. Like when I moved to the U.S. and I found found my first kosher store in L.A., I couldn't believe my eyes. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, you guys have all of the products and all of the luxuries. Italy, in that, it's somewhat basic. So you need to, first of all, go with low expectations. Keeping kosher in Italy is going to be a tiny bit hard. Now, uh, every supermarket would carry multiple multiple Italian kosher certified products because our rabbis don't you know sit on their ass they go out and certify products so yeah. but you would have to know which ones they are so for that there is a list online um you can just google it you just google i believe kosher italian products list so yeah. you would know if you were entering a regular supermarket uh, 
um, which brands are certified kosher. Like when there, there's a lot of what, the ones that come top of mind for every Italian, like, you know, Barilla pasta yes. and uh, Mulino Bianco, which are the cookies. Um, a lot of like regular Italian supermarket brands are kosher. So that would be helpful yes. as a first starting point. Now, yes. cities with a bigger Jewish community, like I said, are Rome and Milano. Yes. Uh, and they all have kosher restaurants. So does Venice and so does, um, what's it called, Florence. Uh-huh. So in these cities, uh, as a tourist, you would be able to eat kosher. Would it be exciting? I hate to say no. Um, no like Roma is a great culinary scene, also kosher. Yeah, I but went, other than that... I had the best pizza I've ever had in Rome. <laughs> it was beautiful. Yeah, no, I know. What I'm saying is <laughs> you would have to keep it reasonable because the choice is limited. Because there are not that many options. And I find coming, like, I, I imagine that people coming from, like, for example, for, from the US, they must think it's rather poor because there isn't a lot of choice. Like, uh, in Milan, you probably have, we have, probably have five kosher restaurants, I want to say, uh, at the most. Uh, Rome probably has a few more, but again, not very many. Um, Florence has two, uh, Venice has one. Um, so, you know what I mean? Like, yes. if, you're, if you're in town for five nights, you yeah. better start cooking for yourself because <laughs> it's going to be a rather repetitive <laughs> menu. Okay, um, now, talking about food... With Rosh Hashanah coming up, what would your family make for Rosh Hashanah? Valid questions. So, so my family actually is half Italian and half Libyan. Uh-huh. Um, so at our holiday table, you would find a lot of Libyan dishes as well, because I've got this, you know, mixed heritage. Um, and accidentally, Rosh Hashanah, we end up being more Libyan than Italian because um, on Rosh Hashanah, some Sephardi communities, uh, I don't know if that's the same, I, d- I don't know what you guys do in South Africa, uh, mm-hmm. but some Sephardi communica- communities have a whole seder, like we do for Passover, mm-hmm. um, but for Rosh Hashanah, we the number of symbolical foods that we prepare for the holiday, so that takes up already a lot of the table, because we prepare, for example, three different type of um, egg dishes that have uh, symbolical ingredients for the holiday, then we prepare um, some uh, special gems, again, three different types of gem. So um, my Rosh Hashanah table is sort of like very um, taken over by that, but if I were to tell you on the Italian side more specifically, uh, and also not necessarily in my household, there are obviously a number of dishes. There's a few with pumpkin, because pumpkin is believed, um, was believed in Italy at least, uh, to bring good luck because it's sweet. So, for example, you would prepare um, sometimes a pumpkin spread that's in the book, um, that's sort of a starter um, that, that has um, herbs in it, so it's a pumpkin herb with a pumpkin spread. Um, you would do, you would, for example, prepare um, ravioli with pumpkin, which is also you know a shape of uh, pasta filled with pumpkin. Um, again, because it's sweet and it could bring good luck. Um, other Rosh Hashanah dishes that you might see, um, let me think. Um, there are some, so for example, in Rome, they would often make, uh, but these are like more festive dishes in general that they're also prepared for Rosh Hashanah. Um, they would make, uh, often broth with meatballs, uh, that's because it's a very nourishing dish, I guess. Um, or, um, let me 
anything. Boy, boy, cat. Why am I blanking right you now? Know, I, I, I was just, to I'll help you. I was just looking, looking through the book and I was paging through and I see the most beautiful little, the pasta filled with meat. Now in South Africa, we call that kreplach. Yeah, okay. well, it's it's a way, you know, those comforting food I find yes. are pretty much the same all over the world. Yeah. Uh, you do get a version of crepe um yeah. more or less wherever you go, I think. Um, yeah. But but like I said, for Rosh Hashanah, you would often make, again, crepe looking things, but yes. with pumpkin, that would be um, also very typical. Okay. Uh, and I was thinking, if you flip through the book, and I was thinking about desserts, one very cute and picturesque, one um, that people prepare specifically for Rosh Hashanah um, is this uh, half moon um, shaped dough which is filled with almond paste um, almond paste is a very ancient Jewish traditional ingredient um, and uh, for example for Rosh Hashanah it's, uh, it, it fits into this like half moon pie um, which I'm assuming probably leads to, to, sort, of, sort of hints to the um, renewal of the moon cycle uh, that happens on Rosh Hashanah, um, uh, okay. but uh, but yeah, that would be you know, one one sweet option that people, um, especially in Rome, you would see it in every household, very common. I'm go- I'll give that recipe out to people <laughs> as well. And then I also <laughs> saw the little meat pies. I mean, that we call that pierogan here in South Africa, and that's quite traditional to have on Rosh Hashanah here. The 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 stuffed oh. little meat pies that you, I think you fry them or bake them. No, I think you fry them. Yeah, you can give them yeah. to both. Um, yeah, so I'll have a look. No, at I you. wouldn't say that those are specifically for Rosh Hashanah here. Those are more like a random Shabbat appetizer, I want to say, because they sit nicely. Um, um, you know, you can just let them sit a bit, and they will still be all right. Uh, um, if you prepare them ahead. Right. Well, this has been a fascinating and wonderful talk. And I'm so happy that Thank I've got, got hold of you in between traveling here, there and everywhere. And um, just lots of luck with your new book. Which I will tell thank you so much. tell people about, and thank you so much for making the time to speak to us. No, no, no! Thank you for having me. Um, it's been a pleasure. Hi FM, one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Love her accent. Um, I love how Italians emphasize sort of at the end, like beefa. Stewart. <laughs> anyway, so as I said, I'm going to share some recipes with you. And one recipe that I think you'll enjoy and perhaps make for Shabbos is her, and I hope I'm saying this correctly, brazata alla carota. Beef stew in carrot and wine sauce. Okay, so among the, this is what she says, among the Shabbat dishes that the Jews of Piedmont have borrowed from their local Italian neighbors, brazzato is one of the most delicious and the most fitting for the holiday. This rich beef stew can simmer for hours on end and be reheated as needed. And it only gets better with time. So it works well as a dinner option for those who like to prepare their weekday meals ahead of schedule or serve it with the Shabbat uh, yellow rice, which is on the, another page in the book, for a festive dinner. You can slow cook the dish in a Dutch oven 
or a heavy-based pot or make it in a pressure cooker to save time or, as I would do, in a crock pot, in a trollin pot. So what you'll need is a kilo of boneless beef chuck cut into about four centimeter cubes. Then you'd also need one and a half cups of dry red wine and you'd need half a cup of extra virgin olive oil, three quarters of a cup of tomato puree, they call passata, two carrots peeled and cut in half, two celery ribs cut in half, one small onion quartered, a pinch of ground cloves, one teaspoon kosher salt, Price if you want a little bit more for taste, freshly ground black pepper. Now, in your pot, your heavy pot, your Dutch oven, as she calls it, you combine the beef, the wine, the olive oil, tomato puree, carrots, celery, onions, cloves, salt, and pepper to taste. Now, I know us South Africans, we like to... Um, Brown our meat first, so you could brown it in the pot first and then add the rest of your ingredients. And then you pour in enough water just to cover all the ingredients, bring it to a simmer over medium heat, and then reduce the heat to medium-low, partially covered, and you cook. And adding water if you need to to keep the ingredients covered, and you let it cook for about two to a half hours until the meat is tender. Now, Obviously, um, my little input here, two cents worth. If you're going to put it into a chillin pot, um, I wouldn't put so much water because remember, you've got the oil, you've got the, the, um, tomato puree, you've got the red wine. So you don't really need that much water in a chillin pot. And then with a slotted spoon, you lift the beef from the pot, set it aside on a platter or in a bowl. And using an immersion blender, you blend the contents of the pot to obtain a smooth liquid sauce. Or you can transfer the ingredients to a regular blender and blend it to a sauce and then return it to the pot. You want the sauce to cook out quite a bit because you want it to be almost like a glaze, I would imagine. Um, and then you place the meat back in the pot. You just bring it to a simmer. And just simmer for a few minutes until the sauce thickens enough to coat the meat. And then you adjust it and you just taste it with some salt. Uh, see if it needs a little bit more salt. Now a little note that she's put here. She says you can cook the beef in one piece and then slice it to serve, which is how brisata is traditionally presented in Italy. But I find that the stew pieces come out juicier and tastier than a whole roast. So there you have it, and we'll upload it so that you can get the recipe from the site. And then, of course, um, I think another recipe that I'd like to share is just a side dish. Now, this I can't pronounce, it's, but <laughs> uh, um, it's a spinach with pine nuts 
and raisins. Yes, I know I should have done my homework and I should have, I should have seen how to pronounce it. But after the break, I'm going to come back with this lovely spinachi con pinoli passerine. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back to the show. Essen Fressen. I'm Sharon Lurie, the kosher butcher's wife, and I'm coming to you live from the studio. It's wonderful to be back. I'm helping Adrian Bogarty out. She is traveling. Uh, she's looking after our international guests. So I am sharing an Italian recipe because I had just interviewed, um, whew, Get her name right. <laughs> Benedita, I'm just going to call her that for the moment. Um, and she has been sharing some wonderful uh, traditionally Jewish Italian dishes with us. Um, here is her spinach with pine nuts and raisins. She says, among the many ingredients that have been paired with the unmistakably Jewish combination of pine nuts and raisins, spinach is one of the favorites. This dish, which is considered a Jewish Venetian speciality, makes a great starter or side dish for the holidays. It is often served on Rosh Hashanah because raisins and pine nuts are supposed to bring abundance and good luck uh, for the coming year. The same custom ex- exists for many Roman Jewish families. What you will need is a half a cup of raisins, seedless raisins, 900, I'd say about 900 grams of fresh spinach trimmed. I like to use baby spinach. Uh, but it's up to you if you prefer regular spinach. It's just, I just find baby spinach a lot easier to clean and, and check. Uh, three tablespoons extra virgin olive oil, half a cup, uh, half an onion, sorry, finely chopped, two tablespoons pine nuts, and some salt and pepper to taste. What you do is you drop the raisins into a small bowl filled with warm water and let it soak until, and let them soak until plumped. Put the spinach in a large saucepan, add half a cup of water, cover, and cook over low heat for a few minutes until wilted. Italians tend to cook food longer than people do in the United States or the United Kingdom and in China, I might add. So it's okay if the spinach is really cooked and even a bit mushy. Drain in a colander. Uh, let it cool and then squeeze well to remove the excess water and you set it aside. In a medium saucepan, heat the olive oil over medium heat, add the onion and cooked, sorry, add the onion and cook until tender and translucent about five minutes. In the meantime, in a small skillet, toast the pine nuts over medium heat until they're gently browned about a minute. Be careful not to burn them. Remove from the heat and set aside. Drain the raisins and pat dry. Add the spinach, pine nuts and raisins to the onions. Season with the salt and pepper to taste and stir well to, com- to combine. Serve warm or at room temperature. So I suppose that could also make for a nice salad. I'm just thinking you could 
use fresh spinach and you could put the raisins and pine nuts on top and then you can make a lovely salad dressing or you could just buy Boba Shah salad dressing. Easy as that. Then we go to a lovely chocolate mousse recipe and it's called Mousse al Chocolata. Chocolata Moussa. Okay, one of my go-to recipes, she says, for a quick and satisfying parab dairy-free dessert is my grandmother's chocolate mousse. I don't like recipes that call for milk substitutes to make a recipe parab because the results often end up being a disappointment. Instead, you can make this chocolate mousse with just two ingredients, fresh eggs and a good quality dark chocolate. The mousse can easily be turned, it can be easily turned into flourless chocolate cake as well. Hmm, that's interesting. That's in another recipe of hers. Um, but pick a chocolate that's dark, um, but not too dark, like one with about 70% cocoa content and allow percent, and, and a low percentage, she says, just doesn't work well. And I know that. Um, a higher one is makes it lovely and rich. And I would say, after working with Pesach, that this is a terrific recipe um, for Pesach. You will need, I've got to wrap this up, so I've got to talk quickly, and I'm going to share it on the side, 300 grams of dark chocolate and six large eggs separated. And then you break up the chocolate and place it in a heat-proof bowl, set the bowl over a saucepan of barely simmering water and allow the chocolate to melt, stirring occasionally. Once the chocolate is melted, remove it from the heat and let it cool until tepid. In the meantime, put the egg yolks in a large bowl um, in the bowl of a stand mixer with a fitted whisk attachment or in a large bowl using a handheld mixer, whip the egg whites till very firm for about five minutes. And then when the chocolate is cooled, pour it into the bowl with the egg yolks and whisk that, whisk that well. And then using a rubber spatula, stir in about a third of the egg whites to, to lighten the mixture and then carefully stir in the rest, folding all the time so no egg whites are showing. And then you put it in the fridge and it's absolutely delicious and I have to wrap up. I'm so sorry. Time is out. And I hope you enjoyed that show. And uh, thank you for joining me and see you next week or the week after.